The following message is brought to you by Champions Church. For more information, please visit champschurch.com. So without any kind of delay, I'd like for you to give a warm champion's welcome once again to Lindsey Guerrero. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one of the things that I love about getting to share God's word in this format is I always think of this as a conversation starter. Um, because I know that each of us here, when we're hearing the scripture and hearing the thoughts that I have just to d- today from the meditations I've had in my own prayer time with God, what I really hope is that it will start a conversation with each other, <laughs> that we'll be able to continue talking about the scripture and especially, especially how God speaks to you during this time. Because one of the things that I love about our God is that he is never stagnant <laughs> in his teaching. Wherever we are, wherever we go, whatever we hear, he is going to be faithful to open our ears and our eyes to his leading. Um, so I'm excited to start the conversation with you all today about a, a passage that's been on my heart from the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have your Bibles open, I'm going to go ahead and read that first, just so we can have it in our minds. Um, And then I'll open us with a word of prayer. So we're going to be looking at the story in Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 through 33. So Matthew 22, verses 23 through 33. And I'll go ahead and read it. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him, him being Jesus, with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother right on down to the seventh, and finally the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, Whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? (laughs) Now Jesus replied, You are in error, because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So let me pray for us. God, what a gift we have of getting to see your word. I thank you for how your spirit is always faithful to reveal new things about your nature and your goodness. God, as we look into this text today, this gift you've given us in your scripture, Lord, I pray that you will open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to your spirit to teach us. God, I pray that we would become smaller so you could become greater. Lord, I thank you for the light you have given each person in this room how you've created each of us in your image. And I pray that we will leave today understanding not just more of who we are as your children, but understanding more how you are calling us into this world to be your body. 
So we pray all of these things, Lord, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So I wanted to start with a bit of a confession, <laughs> keeping myself humble. <laughs> um, and that is to say that one of the things that I have struggled a lot with in my life, and thankfully, thankfully, has gotten a lot better, um, is I used to be a really, I used to worry a lot. I was going to say I used to be a worrier. I'm actually starting, um, Jared was, was someone who encouraged me to not put that label on my identity, to stop saying I am a worrier, to take that off, take that away from claiming my identity. Um, and like I said, I've gotten so much better at this, <laughs> at worrying. Um, thankfully, I have a lot of amazing role models around me, Jared being one, my dad being another, who are both, for me, pinnacles in my life of what it means to live without worry. They're both very good at that. Um, and I've gotten better at truly disciplining myself to not let worry cloud what's true. Um, I know I don't have to work too hard <laughs> to tell all of you and remind this crew of all the places in the Bible where we are told, do not be afraid, right? It's said so many times. Or where we're told, do not worry. <laughs> now, as I've matured in my faith, I've learned to start replacing worry with worship, to stop, start replacing worry with worship. When I personally start to feel the temptation to perseverate on a situation I find challenging, turning my, my eyes to God and worship has never failed me. I can tell you that. It has never failed me. Because worry isolates us, but worship reminds us that we are in a community together, right? We spent this morning worshiping together, and so we know we're not alone. Worry makes us feel out of control, but, but worship reminds us we were never in control to begin with. <laughs> God was in control, right? <laughs> the other thing I've learned about worry is that worry is a monologue, but worship is a dialogue with God himself. And I mean, to be honest, everyone think for a second, was anyone able in this room to hold on to anxiety when they were singing the worship songs we sang just now? Was anyone able to hold thoughts <laughs> of anxiety in their heads while they were singing worship to God, right? That's an incredible thing about worship is that we, actually, Pastor Jared and I preached on this once before that there have been scientific studies that have shown you can't hold anxiety and gratitude in your head at the same time. Science shows us that. So when we worry too much, <laughs> we let the loudest voice in our head dictate the narrative and we eventually when we worry too much we miss the forest for the trees and that means we lose track of the overall picture of what God is trying to reveal to us because we're stuck on something that is challenging us and truly if that's something you face in your own life too I'm going to be praying that that's something you find deliverance from so when we worry too much, it distracts us from what's really important. Um, and I have an example of this in my own life, and it's a story from when I was with um, my unofficial goddaughter, Simone, when she was about four or five years old, an example of when I missed the forest for the trees. Um, by the way, this is not the first story I've told about how Simone revealed something important to me about God, so we should send a little light and love her way because she has obviously been a wonderful teacher for me, especially in her childhood. So we were having what I called an auntie date when she, I think she was 
I think she was four, but let's say four or five. <laughs> and it was one of those days that we had planned all week together. It was also great for motivating good behavior for her mom because that anti-date was on the table. If she ever had bad behavior as a consequence, <laughs> that would be taking away. And we were building it up all week that on Saturday, I was gonna pick up Simone and we were gonna have an anti-date, just the two of us together. And the activity, is that we were going to go to one of her favorite pottery painting studios. I don't know if any of you have seen these places before where they have pottery all made and ready to paint. And you go, you buy, of course, <laughs> you buy some work of pottery that they've created and you get to paint it yourself and they put it in the kiln for you and you get mostly a beautiful work of art. Billy's been there before. I say this because Simone's always turned out better than mine. I was not blessed with the gift of artistic skill, but that's okay. God gave me other things. So, <laughs> um, so we were all ready to go. We got into the car. We drove to the place talking the whole time about all of the, the biggest pieces of pottery we were gonna buy because I'm so cool, I'm her auntie. And yes, I'd already agreed with her mom beforehand that the completely impractical large pieces of pottery <laughs> that we were gonna buy, I would keep at my house, not her house. <laughs> but then we got there to the studio and there was a sign on the door that said, no electricity, store closed for today. So you know what I did? I immediately started to worry. I immediately started to think today is ruined. And I remember this weird fear that somehow my identity as a quote unquote good auntie was about to be compromised. And I remember feeling the panic rising in my chest. And so with my phone in one hand and her little hand in my other hand, I started to A, frantically Google places <laughs> that I could take her to instead before I either failed as an auntie or she had an understandable four-year-old meltdown because her, her hopes were not met. I don't remember how long I stood like that, <laughs> holding her hand while I was frantically Googling other options. But eventually, I heard this little voice pipe up next to me, and she said, Auntie, it's okay. I just wanted to be together, and we're together. <laughs> Talk about, I think there's a reason that God tells us that the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And it's not the first time, again, like I said before, that Simone, <laughs> in her younger years, taught me something about the spirit of God that I needed to be reminded of. And I'm so grateful to her for that. So, and for the record, what we ended up doing is we went to Starbucks right next door and we colored on napkins and I gave her not one, but two cake pops. And she was very excited about that. And when we got home, she talked to her mom about it like I had taken her to Disneyland. <laughs> so, the wee one, as I used to call her, <laughs> now she's 16 and not so wee, um, she reinforced something that I've been taught so many times before. She reminded me that we can get in our own way sometimes with worry or fear or vulnerability and in doing so we miss the whole point entirely. And truly not only do we get in our own way when we do that, we can get in God's way. So friends, I say all of this <laughs> because at the risk of getting in God's way with our own worry or our feelings of pressure to get it right, this is the kind of story that we come upon today, this story from the Gospel of Matthew. This is a story 
where it's easy to get caught up in the legality, the what's right, what's wrong, the if A, then B, then C of who and where and how resurrection happens. And it's written that way on purpose. The Sadducees intended it to be that way on purpose. But Jesus shows us a different way with his response that I'm going to talk about in a little bit. Jesus shows us how to see through to the heart of the story, to the treasure we might have missed. Jesus shows us the forest when the Sadducees wanted you to miss it for the trees. Now, taking a step back, here's something interesting about this passage. Um, something I know just anecdotally is some people, it makes them a little uncomfortable. Um, this is a passage that not a lot of people talk about, and I've actually heard some people say, I don't know exactly what to do <laughs> with this story. Um, and there's another way I see that. Have any of you heard of something called the Revised Common Lectionary? Have any of you heard of that? Okay, that's okay. <laughs> it's not something we use here, so I'll give you a little bit of history about it. Um, the Common Lectionary, now it's revised, is something that was created by mainline Protestant denominations, a council of them, in the 1960s, 1970s. And essentially what it is, is it's a scripture guide that churches use throughout the year. And so it's a three-year cycle where every Sunday certain scriptures are selected to be read. And there's four different categories of scripture, right? There's something from the Old Testament, something from the Gospels, something from the Psalms, and then something, one of Paul's letters. So there's four scriptures on every Sunday. And so the idea is that through the course of the year, you'll get to hear a lot of scripture from different parts of the Bible. The other thing that's interesting about it and like the idea behind it is that for all of the, in general, back then, it's not as, much, not as much now, back then for all of the different congregations in many different mainline Protestant denominations who followed it, is that wherever you went to church on Sunday, you would know that you were hearing the same scripture as what maybe your Methodist friends were hearing, or your Lutheran friends were hearing, or your Presbyterian friends from another part of town. Um, and I think there's something really sweet about that, right? I've gone to churches that have followed it and churches that don't. Um, when I went to churches that followed it, I thought there was something sweet to know that in different churches we were all studying the same scripture on the same day. So even though it's not something that I follow myself in my own faith, I, I can appreciate the intention behind it. But here's the thing. Even in <laughs> three years of Sundays, it's impossible to get through the whole Bible, right? That in all the years of Sunday, all the three years of Sundays, you don't get through all of the scripture. So some things get left out in the lectionary. <laughs> and it's usually the scripture that makes people uncomfortable. For example, Lamentations is not in the lectionary. The book of Lamentations is not in the lectionary. <laughs> Psalm 22 is in the lectionary, but you know what gets left out? Verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Literally the words that Jesus prayed on the cross. Those get cut out. <laughs> you know what else is not in the lectionary? This story. 
it's not in the lectionary. Even though it's one of the few stories in, the, in, in our Bible that's in all three of the first three Gospels. It's in Mark, Matthew, and Luke. This story, almost verbatim, <laughs> is in all three Gospels at the beginning, but it doesn't get put in the lectionary. And so to me, that makes me go, huh. <laughs> I don't think this story is extraordinarily challenging personally, but it tells me something about how people have read the story before and how they react to it. Um, something I hold so close to my heart when I come to scripture um, is developing a practice, or not developing a practice, of skipping over what we find uncomfortable. Um, one of the reasons that I got a master's in biblical Hebrew was so I could learn how to read the Old Testament in its original language, because sometimes there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of stories in the Old Testament that make people uncomfortable and that some churches are tempted to skip over. And first of all, I, I believe in the authority of all scripture. I think if it's in our scripture, God has something to teach us in it, even if at first glance it makes us go, that's hard to hear. I think, I think that all of scripture is put there for a purpose and a reason and not by accident, and God has something to teach us in it. Sometimes I think of going to the scriptures like looking at God through a kaleidoscope, that I can come to the same scripture over and over and over again, and what at first kind of looks like a mess of color and shapes eventually becomes this incredibly intricate pattern and tessellation. And no matter how many times I go to it again and look at it through the kaleidoscope, there's some new pattern or something beautiful I'd never noticed before. Um, and I think we need to put the kaleidoscope on all of the passages of scripture. So when I read this scripture, <laughs> it makes me want to come back to it to see what God has to teach me through it even when others have called it uncomfortable, or even when I have questions, and I ask God to help me not miss the forest for the trees. So let's dive back into the scripture again. That's Matthew 22, verses 23 through 33. So the story begins with the Sadducees approaching Jesus, Jesus with what for me feels like essentially a spiritual Mensa riddle or puzzle, um, and they bring it to Jesus for him to unpack. And this is not the first puzzle that the Sadducees have brought to Jesus. Actually, this whole chapter tells of the Sadducees bringing, I think it's four different riddles, <laughs> essentially, um, to Jesus, and the intention is to embarrass him. The intention is that they want Jesus to fail, they want him to be embarrassed, and they want to expose him as a false teacher. So here's something important to know about the Sadducees. So the Sadducees, like the Pharisees and the Essenes, these were the three major groups of Judaism at the time that Jesus was alive. And politically, the Sadducees occupied many places of political and economic power. They were sort of regarded as the upper echelon of Jewish society. Um, they were also known for being shrewd academics. <laughs> they were known for being the people you would go to um, if you wanted to have academic understanding of the scriptures. And what's most notable from a spiritual standpoint is that the Sadducees, they did not believe in life after death or resurrection. 
So the Sadducees only believed what's called the Pentateuch. It's the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They only believed in those first five books to be authoritative. And because of that, they read those books and thought, well, we don't think Moses has anything to say about resurrection, so we don't think it's real because Moses didn't talk about it directly. So what was of primary spiritual importance to the Sadducees was legacy. And that is to say that our ancestors and our children, they are the ones who determine how we live on after this life. And they're the only thing, our children <laughs> and our ancestors, that give us any glimpse of immortality. So you can imagine then that for the Sadducees, progeny, the generation that follows us, was elevated even more, even way more, <laughs> than it would have been regarded in any other group of Judaism. So they come to Jesus with this question. And knowing Jesus has been preaching the resurrection, like I said, they're trying to stump him and unpack <laughs> um, what, what his response will be. So let's go back and look at Jesus' response. Actually, let's look, at the, let's look at the question one more time in case it went by you too quickly. Because again, scripture is so great, you have to read it over and over again to, to have, have, have it sink in. So here, here's the riddle. <laughs> if a woman is widowed and childless, Moses says that a brother of her former husband should marry her in order to build a legacy. This is actually found in Leviticus. This is one of the Levitical laws. But let's just say the second husband dies, and then the next brother will marry her to try and build a bloodline. But then he dies. Then the next brother will try to marry her and build a bloodline. But then he dies. And then the next, and the next, and the next, until eventually... The woman dies having been married seven times, but with no children. So the Sadducees are coming and saying, hey, Jesus, cool question for you <laughs> right now. In your resurrection world, who exactly is she married to? I want to inject a bit of understanding, not just of the puzzle behind this, but the scandal of this question. Obviously, marriage in ancient Israel had a completely different construct and, than it did, does in our culture today, and I'll talk about that in just a little bit. Um, but I imagine for us, <laughs> even, it made some of us laugh, the image of someone arriving into heaven and having to figure out who her husband was going to be out of the seven, it makes us laugh because it's a little uncomfortable. It's a little, a little salacious even for us. So I, take, I want you to take this feeling, that feeling, <laughs> Multiply it by a lot, and that would be how scandalous that image would have been to the people who were there hearing this story, the people who understood marriage from an ancient Israelite standpoint. So this is the Sadducees' question. They are, of course, trying to trap Jesus. They are also trying to scandalize the crowd to turn, Jesus, turn them against Jesus, um, and they're trying to undermine him, and honestly, I think they're making a pretty good stab at it because <laughs> even I thousands of years later, look back at that logic puzzle and go, oh, you might have a point. <laughs> I don't know how to answer that question. So before we go back into Jesus' answer, let's pause. This is, this is the hard stop, stop I want to talk about because I don't want to miss the forest for the trees. The trap that's been set up for us and for Jesus is to hear the story as a logistical puzzle. The Sadducees have set up a trap of embarrassment, of shame, of scandal, 
and of intellectual inferiority for Jesus. So let's not read Jesus's answer as a logistical answer responding to those traps. Here's what I think. When Jesus answers the Sadducees' question about the widowed and childless woman, I don't think he's responding to the ins and outs and rules of regulations of resurrection at all. I think Jesus is responding to the woman. I think he's responding to the woman. So let's look at that response again. I don't think I have to spend too much time <laughs> going into detail about the place women occupied in ancient Israel, right? Most of us know that it's different than now. Um, and when it came to marriage, marriage was not about love or devotion the way we conceive of marriage today. Uh, marriage back then was explicitly a political treaty between families and tribes, and women were the currency for setting up those, those political alliances between families. So in ancient Israel, when women were married, they moved out of their father's home, so out of their ancestral home, and into the ancestral home of their husband. They were strangers <laughs> in these ancestral homes. They were alone. Um, and even though it was a cultural norm, I don't think it's too far-reaching to think they might have been a little afraid <laughs> to leave the only home they'd ever known and become strangers in a new home. Um, scholars actually say something really interesting, that back then, the closest relationships women had in this context was not to their parents, it wasn't to their siblings, and it wasn't to their spouse. The closest relationship women had was to their sons. And I say sons because their son was the only person who would live with them for their entire life. Because if they had daughters, the daughters would go away. But their sons would, be, would stay in that home for their entire life. Yeah, you have good sons too. <laughs> um, so children were different for women back then. They were allies, right, when in a place where they were strangers. Um, children brought women in ancient Israel community that they didn't have before. So let's go back to the woman in this story. Remember, she was married, but she had no children. And then she was married again, but she had no children, and again, and again, and again, and again, until she died without any children. So the woman in this story lived her life becoming a stranger in a new home again, and again, and again, and again. And remember to the Sadducees, there was no resurrection. <laughs> there was no dignity and worth in not having a lineage. So in their eyes, when they're telling this story, they are saying she died unworthy, they are saying she died dishonorably, and they're saying she died forgotten. So this, 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 this is the part of the story that I think Jesus heard. And this is the part of the story that I think Jesus is responding to. So listen to what he says again. The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die. For they are like the angels. They are God's children, 
since they are children of the resurrection. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, and for him all are alive. He is not the dead, the God of the dead, but the God of the living, for to him all are alive. The Sadducees posed a puzzle to Jesus that focused on the deadness of this woman. The entire story was built on her unworthiness in their eyes, so much so <laughs> that when she arrived in heaven in this story, her only worth was in who she belonged to in marriage. And even that image was created by the Sadducees to mock her. I think Jesus, in his response, speaks to this nameless, downtrodden woman and claims not only her worth, but he claims her aliveness and also says that God's eyes are on you. I think Jesus speaks to her true identity and it's an identity that every single person in this room, every single person in this room shares. Before I close, <laughs> I wanted to ask, have any of you ever been lost before? <laughs> Here's some laughs, so maybe some people have been lost. I grew up with a mother who took directions as a suggestion, <laughs> and so I grew up lost a lot. Um, there was one time that I was truly lost that hit a little different that I wanted to tell you all about. Um, when I was 15 years old, we were on my class, in my sophomore class at my high school went on, I think it was a like a theater in the woods trip, which is kind of funny now that I think about it. Um, but we were in the Santa Cruz Mountains in the woods up there. Um, I grew up in San Diego, so we were in Northern California, and we had just a week as a class, as a, as a, a little retreat. And I don't think my dad even knows this story, so. <laughs> so at some point over that trip as a class, um, me, and three of my other friends, in all of our adolescent wisdom, decided about four o'clock in the afternoon that we wouldn't tell anyone, but we were gonna take a little hike, extracurricular, through the Santa Cruz Mountains by ourselves. Sorry, Dad. <laughs> it worked out, I promise you. Spoiler alert, I was found. Um, so we were taking this hike, and about an hour in, I was like, hmm, I don't think this is a good idea. I'm gonna turn around, and in all my adolescent wisdom said, I'm gonna turn around by myself and try and walk back to the campsite. My dad can tell you I am not someone who has innate outward bound skills. I was never an outdoorsy person, um, so it's not like I had incredible resources to navigate <laughs> the Santa Cruz Mountains by myself. Um, but as I alluded to, I got really, really lost. Like, really lost by myself in the woods at dusk. And I remember the fear <laughs> that just crept, that kind of fear that grabs you by the throat, and especially feeling so isolated, so helpless, and not only helpless because I didn't know where I was, but I knew that no one else knew where I was. No one else even knew I was lost. Um, so spoiler alert, I was found. I was found by a teacher <laughs> who saw me wandering because I ended up only being a few hundred yards away from the campsite, but I didn't see it because I was scared. I missed the signs pointing to the campsite because I was scared. I missed the trail markers pointing to the campsite because I was scared. 
but I didn't miss the person. I didn't miss the relationship. I was thinking of that today. Um, one of my favorite parts of the Gospels is John 3:16. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that all those who believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God sent a person when we were lost. I think that all of us as the body of Christ in this world, as the hands and feet of Christ in this world, we can be people who speak the truth of worthiness to people who need to hear it the most, to people in our community, and even people you know <laughs> day to day who have been told who they are by the world's standards and not by God's standards. And we can remember that about ourselves, right? That God so loved the world that he gave the person of Jesus Christ so that all those who believe in him would not perish, so that all those who believe in him would not be defined by the world's standard of worth, so that all those who believe in him will not be held captive by fear and by shame, but would have eternal life, so that all those who believed in him would not have their identity defined by what they've lost, but defined by who they are as children of God. God so loved you. You are a child of God. That is your identity. So let me pray. God, I thank you for what you reveal to us in your scripture and in your son. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will take us from this place to remind the world of who they are in your image. And God, I pray that we would always remember that your spirit within us tells us the truth about who we are as your children. So God, move us forward as truly your body in this world. Let us be beacons of your light. And may you bless us to show your grace where it is most needed. So we pray all of these things, Lord, trusting in you and trusting always in who you've revealed yourself to be in your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Champions Church. We invite you to join us this Sunday for our celebration worship service. For more information, please visit us at champschurch.com.